portions of the day's programming are reproduced by means of electrical transcriptions or tape recording. It's time to talk sci-fi and superheroes, fantasy and horror. It's time to talk movies, TV, books, and games. It's time to escape boring talk radio and journey through the wormhole into the geek universe. Surprise! This is a different kind of superhero story. This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest you become part of a bigger universe. Well, hold it, slow down. I feel a little like an outsider here. You are! See, the thing is, you guys look at me, you see the funky outfit, and you say, now this guy's a no, geek. A, a, a geek, geek, exactly. But what you don't realize is it is hard <laughs> work making something this pretty look like a geek. So I must be doing it for a reason. Well, you got me convinced, whatever the reason may be. And now, the only talk show host who doesn't believe in the no-win scenario. Your host for Geek Universe, Jim Yelton. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and children of all ages, welcome to another edition of Geek Universe. I'm your host, Jim Yelton, and that voice you heard at the top of the show is our Android announcer, Rachel. We're coming to you live on tape from Geek Headquarters, otherwise known this week as a lonely office in the farthest corner of the basement at FBI Headquarters in Washington, D.C. The truth is out there this week as we look at the return of Fox Mulder and Dana Scully as the X-Files are reopened for six brand spanking new episodes of the Chris Carter-created series. We are joined this week by John Kenneth Muir, the author of several great books about pop culture, and he's going to join us to talk about the X-Files. Also this week, did DC Comics possibly close some ground on the Marvel Cinematic Universe with all of the clips and new information they released during a primetime network special? I'll give you my two cents on that and let you know if they were able to get this particular fanboy excited about the dawn of justice. But before we get to that, this week saw the premiere of the rebooted X-Files, and I'm jazzed about it. David Duchovny, Gillian Anderson, Chris Carter, and a lot of people both in front of the camera and behind the scenes came back for this big six-episode event series on the Fox Network. I frequently wanted to ask some questions about the original nine-season run of the show, and luckily I found author John Kenneth Muir in his latest book, The X-Files FAQ. He's the perfect person to join us for a conversation about alien conspiracies, fluke men, and the Jersey Devil. Having already written books about topics such as Space 1999, horror movies of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and film and TV superheroes, I kicked things off by asking John why he wanted to examine the X-Files. I, I wanted to write a book about the X-Files because I felt that a lot of time had passed since the original context. You know, it had been, you know, basically, I guess I was working on it, you know, 20, 21 years after um, the show began. And, you know, when the X-Files was on, it was huge. And as you said, there were many, many books, wonderful books about about how it was made, uh, you know, episode um, guides, things like that. I mean, it was covered very well. Excellent, excellent resources, things like that. So, yes, you're absolutely right. You know, the X-Files have been written about a lot. But sometimes, and, and this is sort of my guiding principle as, as a writer and what I do on my blog and my other books, sometimes when you're in the thick of something, you can't see the whole picture. Like you're in the context of, of that production, and so you don't see sort of the larger scope of, of what that production is saying. And so when an opportunity arose for me to do uh, a second FAQ book for Applause Theater and Cinema Books, I thought, I want to do the X-Files, and I want to do the X-Files now, because 
were 20 years beyond the context that framed it. And now, sort of for the first time, we can go back and say, why was the X-Files historically important? What was it saying about its time? You know, we're no longer sort of mired in that time, living it day to day. So, like, we have, you know, we have history, we have perspective that we didn't have when the X-Files was on. So I thought, well, the thing that can differentiate my book, really, is I can go in and then I look at all these things. Like, what was the X-Files saying about religion in the 1990s? What was the X-Files saying about government? What was it saying, you know, even about UFOs? And, and any topic like that, suddenly I had the advantage of history to look at. So so that was my reason for wanting to go back to look at a series I love. And, you know, The X-Files for me is a show that I've watched so many times over the years, and I love it because of the cinematic approach to the visuals. I mean, that's a primary reason to love it. But I, I, as time has gone on, I, I've also loved it even more because I've seen it as sort of prophetic. It was kind of showing us that we thought we were living in these really, you know, peaceful and prosperous times, but, you know, around the corner, uh, you know, things weren't going to stay that way. And, you know, of course, we had shows like The Lone Gunman and Millennium, also from Chris Carter, which also kind of said that around the turn of the century, that, you know, these peace and prosperous times aren't going to last. And then, boom, you know, what happens? We reach the 21st century. You know, we get 9-11. You know, there's economic collapse, the Enron. Then there's Hurricane Katrina. And then there's another economic collapse. There's the war in Iraq. You know, boom. Suddenly, the 90s looks like this time of paradise. But you go back and look and you see what Chris Carter is doing. He's like saying, you know, this isn't, you know, historically, this isn't going to last. There are things to be looking for. And so I found that really fascinating. Yeah, and I think you're right, because you know, that's the thing that fascinates me about the upcoming reboot that they're doing, because they were very prophetic in looking forward to the world that we live in now. And it's going to be interesting to to not only see Mulder and Scully in the present day and, and how they deal with things, but if the writing will be just as prophetic, if they're going to be looking forward to what we've got to look forward to on the horizon in the next 10 or 15 years, like the original show did. Because even though, like you said, it was very much a product of its time, I think that the writing staff really had some things to say about where we were going as a civilization. Absolutely. I mean, and, and I, all the works of Chris Carter, I feel, have that quality. You know, there's this uh, introspective quality, and it, it does work on that sort of parallel plane. It's like it's showing us who we are now. And like I said, you can't always see that when, you, when you're in the now. Sometimes you can't see that till later. But it was also prophetic about where we were headed. And I think for the new X-Files to completely succeed, and I really don't have any doubts that it's going to, it is going to do that. I think there's going to be this parallel track. It has to predict a little bit where we're going and it also has to be about where we are now. But, you know, he's always been able to do that. You know, if you look at, I mean, sometimes it's a little unnerving. If you look at the pilot episode of Lone Gunman from the year 2000, which had like a um, an airliner hitting on route to hit the Twin Towers in New York, that was, you know, several months before 9-11, you know. Right. It's, like I said, it's unsettling. It's like it's so prophetic it's unsettling at times. So, you know, I'll, I'll be thrilled to see the X-Files have that kind of platform again to show us where we are and where we're headed. Let's take a look back at the original run of the series before we try and guess where it's going to go with the rebooted episodes. I always tell people I'm not an early adopter of technology in any way, shape, or form. (laughs) I don't have to rush out and get the newest iPhone. I don't have to have the coolest gaming system. But I am an extreme early adopter of pop culture. And I remember being at home watching the premiere of X-Files in 93 when it was just like this show that was just kind of thrown onto the schedule because the lead-in for the X-Files was The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr., 
with Bruce Campbell, which was supposed to be the big Fox show. Like, that was the fun, exciting action-adventure mashup of Westerns and sci-fi, and it had Bruce Campbell, who was really great. That's why I was watching Fox that night. And when Briscoe County Jr. was over, this show called The X-Files was the next thing on, and I just didn't change the channel. And within about five or six minutes of that opening tease, I was hooked because it was unlike anything that I had seen on TV before. It was just the creepiest hour of TV that I'd ever experienced on a network. And I remember going to work the next day, talking to people who didn't watch it. And I was like an evangelist for the X-Files. I was like, you've got to watch this show. It's so creepy. Well, you are much better than I am, sir, because um, (laughs) I I have words that my wife hangs around my uh, neck like an albatross. You know, the X-Files, when it came on the first time, I took a look at the the preview front, I said to her, National Enquirer television. This is like National Enquirer stuff. It looks, you know, like absolute garbage. She watched it. She watched the next one. I maybe was on in the room. Maybe I was, I was in the room when it was on, but I wasn't really paying attention. I think the first one where I start, like I actually sat down and watched it, it wasn't too many weeks in. It was fire. And I was like, oh, boy, am I an idiot. And, and then I started watching from there, and, I, and I, I had the experience you did, but six episodes late. I, I have not been good about things like that because I also said to my wife, searching Buffy before me, and that like took a whole season before I, you know, I caught, I caught on with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and so uh, you know, saw so how clever that was. You know, I, it, get, getting my attention is hard, but once you have it, I'm hooked. So don't, don't, don't know, feel so bad I, about I, Buffy because I was, I was a latecomer to Buffy too. Yeah, you know, I, I looked at it and I saw this kind of glib teen thing, you know, and it, again it was on, but then I started watching. Oh. Okay, there's more going on here. But same thing, I mean, I feel that way about the X-Files. I wish I had started from the very beginning, but, you know, the, my my wife always reminds me that she's the one who got me into it. And, you know, I became, you know, this huge fan of it thanks to her, so... Well, that's, well that's, that's what spouses are good for. <laughs> Absolutely. To help point out stuff like that. And I, I kind of, you know, it's interesting that you brought that up because one of the things when I was prepping for the show, looking back at that first handful of episodes or, you know, first half of that first season, it was really interesting to me that I don't know that there's a real clunker show out of any of the first 13 episodes that were done. And that's really kind of the sweet spot for getting an audience invested in a show. I don't know that too many first season shows can say that. I mean, you know, you brought up Buffy and even the first season of Buffy is kind of hit or miss. And, you know, you look at things like that eventually became really great shows like Star Trek The Next Generation and things like that, where the first couple of seasons, the producers and the writers are still trying to get a handle on the characters and come up with a vision for the show that works. And it seems to me like X-Files, that first season, they really hit the ground running. And it was like Chris Carter knew what kind of show he wanted to make. There's certainly a consistency to those shows. And, you know, I know some people look back and you know, the only thing that I think you can say about those shows that say there's like, you know, it's about like the hairstyles or the cell phones as far as them, you know, being dated. I mean, you look back at some of those early first season shows like Ghost in the Machine, and they're talking about a technology to give you a smart home, which is like what we're hitting right now. And you think that was in 1993. So I don't know, that was like six or seven episodes in, something like that, or maybe yeah. even early. And it was like, you know, that it's true we have different looking computers today but their idea their idea that you're going to have a computer a sort of artificial intelligence like running your home and working the thermostat and doing things like that or you know killing you on an elevator right you know the idea was right on and and it's really it, it is a testament to the writers directors actors all that, that they were able to hit the ground running and sort of hit these concepts that really worked, and you know there aren't many bad episodes. I mean, I'm hard pressed to remember you know a bad episode of the X Files. I'm Jim Yelton, and our guest this week is John Kenneth Muir, author of the X Files FAQ. And coming up, 
we look at one of the biggest things that worked for the show from the very first episode, the casting and chemistry of David Duchovny and Jillian Anderson. That's next on Geek Universe. Hey, this is Paul Shear from The League, and you are listening to Geek Universe. Never stop listening. Welcome back to Geek Universe. I'm your host, Jim Yelton, and we're reopening the X-Files this week with the author of the X-Files FAQ, John Kenneth Muir. Having been a huge fan of Twin Peaks during its two-season run on ABC, I was well aware of the early career of David Duchovny, and I liked seeing him cast as one of the leads of this creepy new show that was on Fox in 93. However, Mulder was only going to work if the right actress was playing opposite Duchovny as Agent Dana Scully. We pick up the conversation as John and I discuss the ins and outs of casting the show. Not only did Chris Carter and the writing staff kind of had a good grasp of what they were trying to accomplish, but one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was the casting of the show, because if there were two more perfect people to be in the show, other than David Duchovny and Jillian Anderson, I don't know who they were. And it's been talked about a lot over the years about how, you know, obviously Jillian Anderson wasn't the first choice, and she's even said that they wanted somebody that was taller and leggier, and, you know, they wanted somebody that was blonde and a little breastier and, and things like that, that they wanted more of a sex symbol sort of actress to play Scully, and Chris Carter really stuck to his guns about the type of actress he wanted playing Dana Scully, and that, to me, especially early on, was one of the things that I liked about it, that she wasn't this supermodel, glamorous character that she seemed real and I think that dynamic between her and David Duchovny really worked from the very first episode where and it worked for her character because she was the skeptic you know you needed somebody a little bit more grounded in that role what did you think when you started getting into it about David Duchovny and Jillian Anderson playing those parts I thought it was perfect. I mean, I agree with absolutely everything you said. I think if they had gone for the, um, you know, the the Baywatch type person, which is I think, and no, uh, Pamela Anderson. No offense to her, you know, she's great at Baywatch. If they'd gone for that, you would have totally lost the legitimacy of that character right out of the bat. You would have been looking at her body, her physique, and you wouldn't have been seeing the real person, and that would have been a tremendous mistake because. You immediately see Scully. I mean, I think she's a a beautiful woman, but you see her for her intellect. You see her for her curiosity. You see her for her brains. So I think that worked. But I think the other thing that they did, and which the actors did perfectly, is they flipped the traditional gender roles. You see it in that first episode. Mulder and Scully, you know, Scully is sort of more stereotypically, and again, I'm talking stereotypes here, male, and Mulder is like more stereotypically female. Scully is somebody who, you know, who, you know, sees more concretes, like, is it this or this? And Mulder is like willing to entertain these other things, and he sort of lets himself down emotionally, or, you know, he lets his shield down emotionally with Scully in the motel room. He tells her about his sister. He connects with her on a emotional level, which, again, stereotypically, we tend to associate more with women. Scully was more analytical, concrete, things we stereotypically associated with men at that point. And so I think it wasn't just that they were perfect for their roles, but how those roles were imagined, not what you expect them to be in terms of gender. The other was religion. Now, Mulder is a believer in absolutely everything, but you mentioned Christianity to him, and he's the most like caustic, cynical person. 
Scully, she is like, has to have proof of everything, but you mentioned Catholicism and she's there on faith. That's like another layer that they added to where you start to see these people as fully developed personalities and, and not just, you know, very attractive people, obviously, but, but fully developed humans with contradictions that even they don't recognize. You know, it's interesting that you bring up the religious part of it because when they made that a part of Scully's character the writer part of me you know my ears perked up a little bit i looked at it and said "Ooh, that's interesting because that adds a dynamic where they can flip the script whenever they get into religious territory and it makes perfect sense and it's realistic and it's it's not kind of a hackneyed plot device to say well in this one specific incidence because it's a religious area scully might be the believer where Mulder's the skeptic and it really set up a situation where you could have those arguments between two colleagues about their belief systems and why they have these belief systems. And I thought that was just genius on the writer's part. Oftentimes you have a series that lasts a long time and the characters kind of get locked down into their roles. And it almost becomes like a Mad Magazine parody of the show because they have their couple characteristics and they stick to that. They stick to those. The X-Files never really became that, at least as far as I'm concerned, because they added those kind of layers. And like you said, they flipped the script. They were able to turn that around. And I just think that worked like, you know, like gangbusters on the show when they did things like that, that they, they were able to sort of plumb the, the depths of these characters in a very human way that made it so that they were never parodies of themselves. And, you know, the other structure that you have with Mulder and Scully, which I, I, I like so much, is simply, you know, in terms of overarching thing, the big thing is that you're allowed to look at issues every day that are happening every day. You know, we're talking about, you know, bioethics. We're talking about environmentalism. We're talking about all those things. And we put on these glasses every week that we watch the X-Files. And in one lens, we have skepticism or whatever. and the other, we have belief. And so just the very structure of the show is so clever. I mean, I try to, when I write about these things, I think about shows that have structure like that that really worked and that people picked it up on. I think one of the reasons the X-Files is so long lived and so successful is that even though they were able to do those things we talked about, like flipping the script, in general, we knew we were going to put on those glasses and examine our reality through those two lenses each week. And I think that was something that was very important, too. The thing that amazes me is how they were able to keep that lens, those lenses intact, but, but do these crazy things like episodes like Bad Blood, where we're, we're like looking at how the characters see each other. Like, you know what I'm saying? It was like, right, what is right. Mulder's impression of Scully? And come out, still love them, but we have a deeper understanding of how they see each other working together every day. You know, Mulder is, you know, irrationally exuberant, you know, according to Scully. And, you know, Scully thinks, uh, you know, uh, Mulder thinks that Scully is sort of, you know, always sighing and not taking him seriously. You know, it's just, just real. There's a lot of depth in those characters there, even within that big structure that contains them. You know, we've talked a lot about what the writers meant to the show. And this show, it's kind of, to me, like I talk a lot about Buffy and Angel and the writing staff that both those shows had. The X-Files was ahead of its time in a way because when you look at the list of writers that were on the X-Files staff, it's like a who's who of the best creative talent working in TV, even today, because all of those people left X-Files 
and created their own shows that are the best, most successful dramas on TV now. I mean, you're looking at Vince Gilligan, who went on to create Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, Alex Alianza and Howard Gordon, who worked on 24 and then created Homeland that's on Showtime. Frank Spotnitz, who's getting acclaim now for The Man in the High Castle on Amazon. I mean, it's these guys, I mean, Glenn Morgan and James Wong, I mean, David Greenwald. I mean, it's a, like a who's who of really great dramatic writers that worked on the show at various points in time, like Darren Morgan. You know, I know I'm leaving out people, but is there ever been a writing staff as good as this show's is consistently over that whole period of time? So in my estimation, no. I mean, this is the best I mean, at writers room. This is like you know the best writers room in you know certainly the maybe the the second or third era of of television production. You know that uh, you you have these amazing talents, and you know I mentioned in my introduction like one reason to look at the X file is to see that you know there was this writers room uh, of personalities, just as you say, who are now all the creators of the TV we love. Now, you talk about, you know, The Walking Dead, Game of Thrones. You talk about people being obsessed with their TV shows. You know, t- TV and film have kind of flipped. Um, fl- film has become much more generic and, and homogenous. You have to win your opening weekend. So it, it's less individual, in some ways less intriguing. It's what TV used to be. And now TV is like film where you have all these niche, uh, niche shows like, you know, Dexter, not in terms of the writers, but also in terms of the directors. The stamp on them is the stamp from the X-Files. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's no other way to say it. There's no other way. You look at the guy who, um, David Nutter, I believe, he was the right, director right. of the, the writing episode of Game of Thrones. You know, and he directed, like, you know, the best pilot in recent, well, I guess it's, you know, 20 years ago now, but the, the Millennium Pilot, he, you know, brilliant work. Um, you know, you go on and on, and you see how this creative hub of the X-Files is responsible for the television that everybody is loving now. You're listening to Geek Universe, and I'm Jim Yelton. Are you a Facebooker? Have you checked out our very nerdy Facebook page this week? Well, what are you waiting for? If you haven't checked it out, you've already missed out on how much we liked the SNL Kylo Ren undercover boss Starkiller bass sketch from Adam Driver's appearance on Saturday Night Live. We talked about a musician's truly epic acoustic version of the Ewok Yub Nub song from Return of the Jedi. And we even told you how you can enter to win tickets to see Star Trek The Ultimate Voyage and hear the music of Star Trek performed live by a full orchestra at a town near you. So don't miss out on the fun in between episodes of the show. It's the Geek Universe Show with Jim Yelton on Facebook. Like us, share us, and become a part of the Geek Universe. Next up on this week's show, John Kenneth Muir and I continue our look back at the original run of The X-Files and we're going to predict what we can expect during this six-episode reboot. Hey, do you miss the days of Space Invaders and Pac-Man? I don't know how many quarters I dropped into Galaga at my local arcade when I was a kid. Well, Gazapper Games has brought those times back for your Android phone with their latest game, Solar Rush. Fast reflexes and strong nerves are needed as you dash about collecting solar cells to power your ship. With the Firebirds constantly on your tail, can you advance through the challenging levels? With lots of nice retro arcade action and over 30 levels to test your reflexes, Solar Rush is a great way to turn your Android phone into a pocket-sized arcade without needing all the tokens. And if you like Solar Rush, try out other Gazapper games like Galaxy Storm and Invaders from Androidia. All three are available from Google Play, or you can get more information at gazapper.com. That's G-A-Z-Z-A-P-P-E-R, gazapper.com and Google Play. 
This episode of the show is sponsored in part by Ace Designs Media. With hundreds of web design projects under their belt and over 200 happy customers, the Ace Designs Media team knows how to build beautiful, interactive websites, and they can help with yours too. Whether your business needs a site that will simply wow your customers, or you need to add advanced features like e-commerce or blogs, their affordable prices mean that there is no longer any reason to say no to a high-quality, engaging website. So say yes and take the first step towards a new dynamic web presence for your business and visit the Ace website at Ace designsmedia.com that's acedesignsmedia.com you are listening to geek universe with jim yelton have a comment about the show find us on facebook at facebook.com slash 30 minutes of geek Hey, we just want to let you know that this week's show is brought to you by Soylent Green. You know, if you're hungry, there's nothing else that satisfies your craving better than Soylent Green. Remember what Charlton Heston said. Soylent Green is made out of people. That's right. Soylent Green. It's 100% green and 100% people. And coming soon, three new flavors. Soylent Red, Soylent Berry Burst Blue, and Diet Soylent with half the calories and half the people. You gotta tell them! Silent Green is people! Do, do any of you guys love The Walking Dead? We're going to be talking about The Walking Dead a little bit. How upset are we about The Walking Dead right now? I'm not caught up. Seriously, there's going to be spoilers. How far behind are you before I get into it? Because I don't want to spoil anything for you. Oh my goodness. We can't talk about it. It's, it's going to be tough to talk. There's, how do I say it? There's something going on with Glenn. I know and he died. I know he's, dead. he's not dead yet. That's the problem. They haven't said whether he's alive or not. Everybody's really mega upset because there's been like three episodes and we don't know if Glenn's under a dumpster or not. I mean, for crying out loud, I just wish they would tell us, is he dead or not? I hate this. I mean, to me, The Walking Dead, though, is... Almost like The Sopranos. When The Sopranos was on, I got really super intensely into The Sopranos. And every week I would just be like, kill that guy. Like, why are you, why are you not killing that guy? Like, I would shoot that guy in the head and just move on. In The Walking Dead, I kind of feel like I'm becoming like worse than Rick. Like, Rick is like crazy. And I just have no tolerance for anybody now when I watch The Walking Dead. And that's kind of like going into the real world where... I'm just like, yeah, just kill that guy. Like, I don't understand what the problem is. Just move on. Let's just kill people that we don't like, and we'll be okay. The, the worst part, though, is I have two daughters, and knowing that Rick has a daughter on the show that's a baby now, but I always watch the show, and I think, what's little baby Judith going to grow up into? Like, if she, if she grew into a teenager like my kids are, Having Rick as a dad when you're a teenage girl trying to date in the zombie apocalypse is not the best thing for you to have to deal with because Rick's got the three questions. You guys know the three questions? It's how many zombies have you killed? How many humans have you killed? And why? That's how they know whether you're a good person or not. And I just keep thinking to myself, like, I'm going to be that dad that when some boy comes to pick up my daughter for a date, I'm going to be like Rick and just be like, how many humans have you killed? How many zombies have you killed? Why, why'd you kill them? What's wrong? 
popfunko.com is the best place on the web to shop for those awesome Funko Pop vinyl figures. Specializing in rare and hard-to-find figures, popfunko.com carries limited editions, metallics, glow-in-the-darks, autographed, chase, and retired pops. All your favorite characters from The Walking Dead, Ghostbusters, Game of Thrones, The Big Lebowski, and many, many more can be found here, too. They even have collector sets and a bargain bin featuring pop figures for $10 or less. It's my first stop when looking for Funko figures, and now it can be yours, too. That's popfunko.com. Thanks for joining us for this week's Geek Universe. I'm your host, Jim Yelton, and we're talking The X-Files this week as the Fox Network has brought back creator Chris Carter and stars David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson for a big six-episode event series. A couple of episodes back, you might remember, we talked about how the TV landscape's changing, and I really think we're going to see more of these short-run series that are going to copy the big event feel of blockbuster movies. So let's jump back into the conversation with John Kenneth Muir, author of the X-Files FAQ. Before the break, we were talking about, I mean, the really, truly awesome, fantastic group of writers that Chris Carter had around him working on the original run of the series and how many of them have gone on to create great television series themselves. They are almost single-handedly responsible for the golden age of TV that we're in now. When you look at all of the shows that they went on to create after they left X-Files, and it just blows my mind. And, I mean, I remember being a writer, I latch on to certain people that I like, you know, as far as their writing goes. And even on TV, when you start to see the same guys writing your favorite episodes of shows, you know that they've really got something. And so, you know, it didn't surprise me when I saw Vince Gilligan go do Breaking Bad, or I saw what Alex Ganza and Howard Gordon did with 24 and now with Homeland. I mean, they had that writing down when they were doing X-Files and they wrote some of my favorite episodes of the X-Files. So I always love pointing that out to people that there was this, you know, kind of clubhouse where all these guys got together and honed their writing skills before they went off and made this golden age of TV that we're living in. You know, I have actual concrete things I can point to as far as what those writers went on and did or what those directors went on to do after the X-Files. And you can see, okay, they all came from the same place. So something there worked extraordinarily well because it molded and shaped you know, the greatest talents in TV right now. Um, and again, I wouldn't have had that 10 years ago. Writing the book now, again, I, it's like sometimes when you're in the context, you can't see what things are going to become. But when you leave the context and you're out of it, you can. You can say, right. oh, my gosh, these, these are like all the best writers on TV. And, you know, it also – and I know not everyone agrees with me and, and not everyone has to. You know, everyone loves Breaking Bad, right? And, you know, and, but, but, but then, like, the X-Files gets put down. Well, the last two years weren't any good. Well – Go back and actually watch them now. Watch those Vince Gilligan stories. Yeah. Now. They're so, genius. Even and, even those episodes, in my opinion, are genius. Yeah, and that was one of the things when they announced they were doing the reboot, and I totally agree with the way that they're going about it because they're only doing, you know, the six-hour-long episodes. It's going to be like a real hit-and-run sort of thing. But two things. One, it can't just be six hours of the alien mythology. You have to mix in some Monster of the Week episodes in that run. And the other thing was, who's writing these episodes? Because if you go back to the well and get some of the really great writers that worked on the show just to come in and write one hour-long episode for you, that six hours is going to be golden. you got Gordon in there. Um, you've got uh, Glenn Morgan and James – and I think uh, Darren Morgan are back. So, you know, it's it's just really – you know, I, I think it's going to be great. I, I, there's no reason why it wouldn't be at this point. You know, every, the whole the, the team is in place to to go forward and give us sort of the next step in the X Files. 
everybody remembers the X-Files for the big alien mythology that it kind of weaved from the opening pilot episode until the end of the series. But my favorite episodes always tend to be the Monster of the Week episodes. Do you you have a personal preference for the alien mythology versus Monster of the Week? And I was really into doing these multi-episode arcs and following the nuances, the eddies and currents of the alien mythology story and enjoyed them tremendously. I think they're very good. But I have such an appreciation for the Monster of the Week stories because I don't typically have time to binge television. I can't watch, you know, a four-episode X-Files run, but I can put in Home or I can put in The Host or Detour or any of those Monster of the Week stories, which, you know, are pretty golden. I mean, they're, they're excellent. So, you know, right now I'm really enjoying watching the Monster of the Week shows. But I'm also, you know, when I wrote the book, I went through and I, uh, you know, I, I basically watched, I think, virtually every episode again to, to do it. So, you know, it's, it's hard for me to pick. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of feel the same. And that's why I think I like the Monster of the Week episodes, because I don't have to try and remember what the right. whole backstory of, you know, where we're at in the alien mythology kind of storyline. And if I see a Monster of the Week episode, it's real easy for me just to sit down and, and get into it for that hour. And I don't have to think about the, the bigger picture story. Absolutely. You know, one of the other things that everybody remembers and, and loves about the X-Files was from the very beginning, we got some really good recurring characters on the show. I mean, between the lone gunman and, and Skinner, once he became their boss, being a big part of it, Deep Throat was in the second episode, and the best recurring character in the entire series, the Cigarette Smoking Man, makes a cameo appearance at the end of the very pilot that kicks it all off. Do you have any favorites amongst all the recurring characters from the show, or is there anything that you enjoyed about them? They were all great and so memorable. I mean, watching it today, I really enjoy the Lone Gunman. You know, they give voice to something very interesting, I think, about American culture, the sort of obsession with conspiracy that sometimes, you know, I find very intriguing, especially, you know, after all the years of conspiracies we've had since then, you know, conspiracies about everything, you know, from uh, 9-11 to uh, the 2000 election to, you know, I mean, golly, President Obama has so many conspiracies, you know, around him, you know, that he wasn't born or whatever, the birther stuff. I mean, it's, you know, it's just, right. it's, just, it's just very interesting to me how the lone gunmen negotiate all that. How it's like one minute they're talking about, you know, Teletubbies or something like that. And then the next, you know, they're talking about, you know, Saddam Hussein and he was, you know, this actor that we put in there. You know, it's very, to me, I did very amusing. It's not tongue in cheek, but it, it gives me a laugh because there's sort of under the surface, there's an awareness that maybe it's really ridiculous or maybe they're onto something. You know, I don't know. <laughs> well, so I you, love that. you bring up a good point because when the X-Files premiered, there were obviously – there was a, a subculture of these conspiracy theorists that were out there, and, and it's not like the X-Files was making this a, a new thing. They were just taking advantage of some of these conspiracy theories that were out there. But it seems to me that because the X-Files was so successful, the idea of conspiracy theories has become much more mainstream and acceptable. Do you think that that's because of the X-Files or it's just because of the world at large? Um, you know, I mean, it, it's the show that, you know, galvanized, you know, a phenomenon, you know, with the rise of the Internet. You know, so I mean, I've read some things that said, well, you know, you know, the, the X-Files made conspiracy theories sort of more acceptable. I don't know necessarily true. I think if you actually looked at what happened, it was the rise of the Internet, which coincided with the rise of the X-Files, as I said. 
that sort of made conspiracy theories proliferate. So, you know, I don't, I don't want to tag like the negative side. I mean, because you know, I'm, I'm sure you're the same way. I mean, you know, you hear some of these things like, oh, my gosh, you know, please. I don't that on the X-Files. I, I think that's something in human nature that has to do with the anonymity and rise of the Internet and the, the freedom to express yourself and the need to create meaning out of chaos. I think the X-Files picked up, up stuff and played on it, but I, I, I don't want to say it was responsible for any of it. I wouldn't want to say that. I, I just wouldn't want to tag. I wouldn't want to land that on the X-Files shoulder. I'm Jim Yelton, and our guest this week is John Kenneth Muir. You can find more information about his latest book, The X-Files FAQ, along with all of his other books and his blog at reflectionsonfilmandtelevision.blogspot.com. Coming up, we wrap things up by wondering just what the heck the studio was thinking trying to keep the show on life support after it lost one of its lead actors. That's next on Geek Universe. Hi, this is Alec Gillis, writer-director of Harbinger Down, and you are listening to Jim Yelton on Geek Universe. Thanks for stopping by for another exciting episode of Geek Universe. I'm Jim Yelton, and we're chatting this week with John Kenneth Muir. He wrote a great new book looking back at the original nine-season run of The X-Files called The X-Files FAQ. And we've talked about the beginnings of the show, the dynamic chemistry between the stars and the great storytellers that Chris Carter had in the writer's room. But after seven seasons, David Duchovny decided not to continue with the show. This left the studio with a huge decision to make as far as how they were going to keep the franchise going, or even if they should keep it going. John kind of gets inside the mind of the network and studio executives as we pick up our conversation. There is the full possibility that this is going to, you know, not just be comics and books and a TV series, but there's going to be movies and, you know, we're going to have spinoffs and that at some point there's going to be another TV series. The, the concept became bigger, in a sense, than just the Mulder and Scully story, just as Star Trek became bigger than just Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. You can't get to that level of success and say, you know, as soon as Mulder's gone, it's over. Um, that we no longer have stories in this universe, and that this universe was only valuable if we were looking at it through the lens of Mulder. Isn't it possible we could have another lens, a different person to do it. Isn't it possible that we could find our Benjamin Sisko or our Jean-Luc Picard or our, you know, Lieutenant Commander Data, whoever you want to point to? It would have been a gross and terrible mistake, in my opinion, to have ended Star Trek um, and not gone for Star Trek The Next Generation, to say, well, you know, we don't have Kirk and Spock, so let's just you know, let's just let's just end that. We have no more stories to tell if we can't put Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock in it. But let's create another character with just as much integrity to examine this world. And that's what they did with Doggett, and it's what they did with Reyes. And people get very upset about that. Now, if the X-Files had gone off the air season seven and come back two years later with season eight and was called X-Files The Next Generation, <laughs> maybe we would have tried harder to accept Doggett and Reyes, the way we tried hard to accept Picard and Data and Troy and Worf and Riker and those people. Um, but we didn't have that gap. It was sort well, of like, boom. Yeah, yeah, and that's what I was kind of thinking was with, with Star Trek, and everybody points to that as another example. And I think with Star Trek, though, there was there was some breathing room in between the original cast ending their run and the next generation starting up. And so it was a little bit easier to transition, but the next generation also had some growing pains too, because there were a lot of fans that would not accept a new crew and a new ship. So I, I don't think that it's fair to kind of point a finger and say, well, we're just not going to accept these new characters because I like you, I thought they did a great job and were very smart in how they approached 
bringing in these two replacement characters and continuing the show. I just wonder if the fan backlash would have been as much if they're, like you said, if they had taken a break for a couple of years and then come back. Right, right. I guess where I come down, and this is very controversial, and it, and it, because it also leads me to accept even the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movies to some extent, is that Star Trek and the X-Files and things like that have been very positive forces in, in my life. I mean, that sounds silly to talk about television that way. But again, I told you I have a nine-year-old son. Do I want that in my son's life, to have that same sort of positive influence? Or do I want it to be Twilight and the Hunger Games? <laughs> it's the, the answer is yes. And if the answer is yes, then as a fan, you have to accept the fact of time's passage. And that also changes in taste. And that it's not going – it can never be the show that it was. It can only be the show that exists now. But it can continue to put forward those philosophies. This franchise no longer speaks. It can no longer achieve what it did in my life. I don't believe that either – that's true for either Star Trek or the X-Files at this point. And so I say – you have to do what you need to do to make those franchises continue. And time's passage means that, again, X-Files is going to face this again. I used enough philosophy to exist going forward with new characters or here just for the personalities. I mean, I'm not saying one is right or one is wrong, but I'm saying I know where I fall. And now it's time to find out Jim's opinion on the hot topics of the day. It's Jim's Two Cents. We've been waiting, sometimes impatiently, for DC Comics and the DC film franchises to catch up to all of the great stuff that Marvel's been doing with their cinematic universe. Well, last week might have been the first shot in this new Marvel vs. DC because we saw footage from the upcoming Wonder Woman, we saw a new trailer for Suicide Squad, and we saw promotional art for the upcoming Justice League. And it was all part of a big... 30-minute Kevin Smith-hosted infomercial that was on the CW last week as part of its big mid-season CW superhero series launches. I liked what we've seen from Wonder Woman so far. The only thing I worry about is Wonder Woman's not the easiest character to adapt to a big-screen movie. There's a lot of backstory. There's a lot of stuff that they're going to have to explain to the audience, especially since they're doing it in a time period that we haven't really seen on screen that much and is going to be kind of new for a modern-day audience because it's set during World War I. Everybody knows a lot about World War II, and one of the reasons why World War II is such a great setting for movies is because that war was very black and white in some respects. It was very much good versus evil. It was us versus the Nazis. And so you do get that kind of heroic arc with a World War II set story. The problem with World War I is that it was a much more complicated war. I don't necessarily know that a modern audience is going to know that much about World War I and what the stakes were. So it'll be interesting to see what they do with the setting and how they use Wonder Woman in that time period to make her relevant for today's audience. Some of the other stuff that was kind of unpacked in the special was long-term plans. Obviously, we know that they're building to a Justice League movie. We saw some glimpses of promotional artwork for Cyborg and The Flash, who are going to be two components of the Justice League team. One thing that's missing, though, is Green Lantern, and it was revealed by Jeff Johns in the special that they are working towards a Green Lantern core movie, which, if Green Lantern's not going to be a part of Justice League, I really like the idea of them doing a Green Lantern core movie, especially if it's a John Stewart, Guy Gardner team-up sort of thing, if they've got the buddy cop kind of lethal weapon template in the DC Cinematic Universe. The other thing that was awesome about this special was that we got a new trailer for the Suicide Squad. And 
in some ways, as much as seeing Batman and Superman on the big screen together excites me, just the the inner fanboy, from a movie fan standpoint, I'm a little bit more excited about Suicide Squad. I think they did a tremendous job choosing David Ayer to write and direct this. I've loved the movies that he's done, especially his last two. Fury was great. And Sabotage, if you haven't seen Sabotage with Arnold Schwarzenegger, it is highly underrated and it's a great movie and that actually I saw that right before they announced David Ayer was going to do Suicide Squad and I thought that was just brilliant that they picked him I don't think there's too many people that could pull off the concept of villains fighting villains or or bad guys fighting even worse guys like David Ayer could I mean he's just going to capture the grittiness and, and the dark part of the DC universe I think perfectly I know people are concerned about how the Joker's going to be portrayed. You know, obviously Jared Leto is going off the rails, bat crazy, insane with this, but that's needed in this movie because you need something that's going to bring the rest of the Suicide Squad into a clearer picture of who they are. But it does. It looks great. The trailer that premiered during the Dawn of the Justice League special, the fact that they used Queen and Bohemian Rhapsody just kind of perfectly summed up what this movie is going to be, and it looks awesome. I can't wait to see this movie. So from my perspective, it just looks like this was DC kind of planting the flag and saying, you know what, we're not conceding superhero movies to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Just like I said with the early days of the MCU, it's going to be tough because if they stumble with any of these early movies, they can't afford too many misfires. That was the thing about the MCU. They started off strong, and by the time they got to some movies that weren't as strong, they had already set the stage, and they they had enough momentum that they could push through a bad movie here or there, or an off movie. DC needs to get that momentum going, and hopefully Batman Superman gets it kicked off, and it, it just carries through to the summer to Suicide Squad, because I actually think Suicide Squad's going to be the better movie of the two this year, coming from DC. But what do I know? That's just my two cents. That's going to wrap things up for yet another exciting episode of Geek Universe. Thanks to our guest, John Kenneth Muir. Don't forget, you can get more information about his blog and books, including his latest, The X-Files FAQ, at reflectionsonfilmandtelevision.blogspot.com. Or you can check out all his books at amazon.com. And don't forget, you can find this entire episode along with each and every episode of the Geek Universe at geekuniverseshow.com on iTunes and coming soon to Android devices through Google Play. And make sure to become a fan of Geek Universe on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com slash 30 minutes of geek. Our Facebook page is the place to join me and your fellow fans to talk about the latest news from all around the pop culture landscape. It's the best way to interact with the Geek Universe in between episodes of the show. So find us on Facebook at Geek Universe with Jim Yelton. For Rachel, our robotic announcer, I'm Jim Yelton reminding you that even though the truth is out there, remember, trust no one. You've been listening to another exciting episode of Geek Universe with Jim Yelton. Find out more about the Geek Universe, including how to buy Jim's book, the exciting sci-fi adventure The Swindlers of Doom, along with our other geek merchandise, information about our live shows, our full archive of previous episodes, our bonus features podcast, blogs, and more at midnight-entertainment.com. You can also find the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash 30 minutes of geek, or on Twitter using the Twitter handle at 30 minutes of geek. Geek Universe with Jim Yelton is a production of Midnight Entertainment LLC and is a proud part of the GLN Radio Network. This episode is copyright 2015. All rights reserved. Well, kids, that's all you get. That's it. <laughs>